Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Greetings and welcome to Hell. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Cohen, and... uh, Oh, oh no, I've I've drawn a blank. And preparing to stare into the black abyss of potential humiliation, and I think Luke's already there, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 10th of January 1995, unsurprisingly... FIFA 95 remains top of the gaming chart, while E17 have their fifth and final week at the top of the pops. But we have a new box office number one, two, Freddy's coming for you with Wes Craven's new nightmare. Mark it, Mark. I'm doing a film about my nightmares as I'm dreaming them. In order for the movie to continue, it was dependent on me having more nightmares. Well, fortunately, I did. I'm a little frightened by what Wes may have tapped into. I frankly felt that it was over when we did the last, the final nightmare. In a town where movies go over schedule and directors go over budget, something far more evil is out of control. suffered its own terror today as two of Hollywood's best-known special effects technicians were found dead. Part of the theme of the movie is becoming like part of the making of the movie. when the story dies the evil is set free now that the films have ended the genie's out of the bottle 
that's what the nightmares are telling me, and that's what I'm writing. This is still a script we're talking about, right, Wes? He's trying to cross over out of films into our reality. The only way to stop him is to make another movie. Ten years on from the first Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes reinvents the character, and what we see here is almost, it's, it's kind of the prototype for where horror starts to go in the 90s. This is proto-scream going on right now. It is, yeah. This is a meta-commentary on the horror genre, which is what Scream basically bases it, its entire premise around. You know, Kevin Williamson has said in interviews that the two films that really inspired him to write Scream were Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, because it's a comedy movie, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And that kind of inspired him to write Scream in this sort of postmodern version, this postmodern view on the horror genre. And it's this fascinating film that sort of works and sort of doesn't work. I remember being like kind of marveled by New Nightmare when I first saw it, you know, many, many years after this, like in the VHS rental era. And at the same time being like, it's almost a bit too clever for its own good. It's also not clever enough for it, for it to really work. It's, I, I find it a bit of a mixed bag. I think I, am, I enjoy its ambition perhaps more than I enjoy the film itself. Yeah, I mean, I like the concept of we're getting a film within a film because the universe of this film is our universe or parallel to it because the Nightmare on Elm Street films are works of fiction in this universe. And so you see Heather Langenkamp playing Heather Langenkamp, Robert England playing Robert England, Wes Craven playing Wes Craven. Kind of weird, kind of cool. I'm down with it. But then you have Freddy Krueger, who literally straddles the two universes. But the Freddy of this film is not the Freddy from the previous films. This is actually closer to the Freddy Krueger that Wes originally envisioned. He is a darker, more sinister character. He's not quite as quick with the quips. And he's also not above possessing children, which I don't mind saying, eh, freaks me the fuck out. Yeah, the little kid in this, Heather Langenkamp's um, uh, son, is giving a hell of a creepy performance he's got creepy child vibes written all over him and yeah this is basically like it's this freddy krueger sort of like manifested itself into a reality and taken on the form of the freddy that's in the nightmare on elm street movies and has broken into our reality but there's also moments later on in the film when heather langenkamp goes to speak with wes craven and wes craven has written their conversation as a script but wrote that script the day before Heather arrived. Like, there's all of these like weird ideas that you're like, oh, that's cool, but it's never really kind of fully explored. And like, it's like Freddy is kind of turning it into a dream world because later on, Saxton arrives and is acting like her dad from the original movie. It's like there's some of these really cool ideas. It kind of enters almost a dream state and the kind of the, the walls of reality are breaking down somewhat. As much as I keep bringing this film series up and, hey, guess what, I'm going to do it again. It's kind of, it enters that surrealist state that Phantasm often does. And I think maybe that's why I like it because I don't put this Nightmare on Elm Street with the other Nightmare on Elm Street films. Oh, does not belong. I put it with your Phantasms, your mind warps, you know, your, your kind of real head twisters. I really dig it. I mean, I love even in the credits. Robert England is credited as Robert England and Freddy Krueger is credited as himself. I, I still find it amazing that they didn't do a scene with Freddy and Robert, though. Because like even like Robert England has said that he thinks that was an error. And I think Wes, Wes stated in interviews that he, he wished he'd had done that. 
I, I can see why they would do that. I actually kind of liked that for the most part, the weird shit with Freddy Krueger only happens to Heather and her kid. Like, okay, her husband in the film dies. At the, at the hands of Freddy. Well, the hand, singular. Yes, yeah. Let's not get the singular plurals mixed up. We have enough of that with Dom. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, is what's happening really happening? Is it all in Heather's mind? By keeping it isolated from other people, even though, you know, hey, Wes is dreaming again. Wes is, Wes is writing again. It still kind of leaves this whole idea of like, is she actually losing her mind? Yeah. This is maybe me giving the credit film for being smarter than it was actually trying to be, but I just think it, it kind of works. Also, full credit to them for managing to work the earthquake that actually happened into a film that already had an earthquake written into it, just not quite as big as the earthquake that actually happened. Yeah, so there was an earthquake in LA that they went out and they filmed like B-roll of and then used that within the uh, the film itself to show like, you know, actual earthquake after effects, essentially. And it's funny as well, because when they're out there filming that B-roll, I know that they were also doing some stuff for uh, Mortal Kombat. They were writing the script for Mortal Kombat on that same day because Paul Anderson tells the story about how the writer drove over to his house during that LA earthquake to write at his place. I find it kind of unsettling. It's like, okay, there's been an actual earthquake. You know, people's lives have been changed and ruined. Let's go out and shoot some B-roll. But at the same time, it makes the film look a lot bigger budget than it actually was because there's aftermath footage and it's not your standard stock footage. It's the same film stock as the film, which creates a really coherent cinematic look. I mean, you and I both watch a lot of films where stock footage gets used and it's like, well, that is clearly stock footage. Yeah. We can identify stock footage, particularly when it's of destruction or riots or stuff. It's why whenever they feature civil unrest in a lot of films now and they're just using stock footage, it always gets the fake TV look, even though scan lines aren't really a thing anymore. They always do something to try and just make compensate for the difference in quality. Here, it really, really worked. It did get a bit of mixed response and it didn't do great at the box office. It was actually the least profitable of all the Nightmare on Elm Street films. But in America, at least, it also opened opposite Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I think here as well, like when when it's a title of it's not Nightmare on Elm Street 7, it's Wes Craven's new nightmare. Maybe that factored into it somehow. I also think it was ahead of its time. It's my third favorite Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Uh, even though I do think of them as like, it's not really part of Nightmare canon. If you're looking at it sort of as a franchise hold, it's easily my third favorite movie. It would be Dream Warriors, the original, then this. And there are times when I prefer this to some of the other, the uh, one and three. I, I've got a lot of love for it. When me and my friends did our Nightmare on Elm Street marathon, and we watched all the all of them from the first one to the remake back to back, and it was the first time my friend had seen any of the movies, the one that he wanted to talk about the most was New Nightmare because he was really, really like impressed by how creative the film was, particularly for, you know, 93, 94. He was mad impressed by that. Yeah, and you could actually watch this film without having seen the previous films. If you just had cultural awareness of what they are and who Freddy Krueger is, this movie would actually make a perfect amount of sense and be a perfectly entertaining film. Do you know what? It might actually be more entertaining because realistically, it's a film about Heather. It's a film about dealing with loss. It's a film about elements of a person's career overshadowing who they are now. 
And really, if you're aware of who Freddy Krueger is, if you know about the Nightmare on Elm Street films, you know enough because the film doesn't belabor the point, but it fills in the blanks well enough. It does, yeah. And I like that they've actually gone for, no, this is a darker Freddy Krueger. This is more like the Freddy Krueger in the first film, you know, back where he didn't quip quite so much. And I like the different look they gave him with the trench coat and the bone claw and the it's different so fedora. It's so cool. It's a badass look. It's so cool. I love the new Nightmare design. And you mentioned that as well, like that you can go into this fairly blind and the film does a really good job of explaining things to you without you needing to know. Because like, you know, Bob Shea is in this movie, the producer of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, as himself, as the producer of these Nightmare on Elm Street movies. If you don't know who Bob Shea is, the film tells you who he is by just having loads of Freddy merchandise around him and, you know, in his new line office and everything. So you can just go in there and be like, okay, cool. He's the guy that makes the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And the same with with Wes later on. I think where it fell foul with some critics is it wasn't as campy as the previous ones. It wasn't as gory. It didn't have the kind of the spectacular, creative, welcome to primetime bitch or the video game kills. It was a slow burner. Yeah, a long film as well. It's about two hours, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's almost a solid 120. And it feels, it feels it's two hours as well. I feel it as two hours. I don't feel it as being a bad thing, though. I'm just like, this film is building towards something. And there's things like, you know, there's, are they structural cracks from the earthquake? Are they claw marks? What happened to the stuffed toy? Stuff like that. It, it's a slow burn. And yeah. it's the first time that's really been applied to a Nightmare on Elm Street film. In fact, the slow burn nature of it actually has more in common with Halloween. It really does. Like, you, you compare this to... Um, perhaps not Freddy's Dead because that's got, got a relatively low kill count as well but 4 and 5 in particular like I'm trying to think through New Nightmare there's what two deaths in the whole film a boyfriend and there's a babysitter and that's it maybe this is something that they didn't say explicitly enough but this is not the Freddy Krueger slasher of the movies exactly this is kind of a primal terror that feeds on fear and has taken on the embodiment of this character from a yeah. movie series as I said, there's some really, really fascinating ideas within this, and which is why I've got a lot of love for it. I'm thrilled to see that it got to number one here in the UK as well and fall into our timeline. Absolutely. And like, as soon as I saw this, I'm like, I'm pushing that back up the queue for Shocktober. Mm-hmm. That's going to get rewatched. And the thing is, it will be rewatched probably on its own. I won't watch any of the other films this time. I'll just drop on New Nightmare and have a bit of, well, fun's the wrong word. I'll enjoy the film. Exactly. Yeah. Just don't watch that remake. What remake? well luke i'm happy to say this is probably the last time we'll be looking at this issue of the magazine we only get two weeks with it which is why we did dom's big purple column last week but four page review of virtua fighter for the sega saturn (sighs) okay right well i'm okay i need to bring up my notes to remind myself of what it got in the tv show Oh, no, no, no. There is something in here more exciting than a four-page review of Virtua Fighter. Uh We got Rise of the Robots reviewed, mate. (laughs) Well, I'm also incredibly curious to see what they say about that. In fact, actually, I'm more curious to hear what they've got to say about that than than Virtua Fighter. I'll give you the quick rundown on Virtua Fighter. 94 for the graphics, 94 for the sound, 96 for the gameplay, 90 for the lifespan. Overall, 90%. Oh, so it was actually less than what the TV show gave it. That gave it 96. And just an interesting comment itself on the Saturn, because they have a little box out on the Sega Saturn going, so this is it then, the Saturn, 
first impressions are that it looks a bit tacky, actually. All those shots from Japan made it look like it was made of expensive, shiny stuff. It did. They were very well lit. So imagine our surprise when it turned out to be a matte, grey, cheap-looking, plasticky thing. It looks more expensive than the Mega Drive, though. The joypads are a bit cheap, too, but they're great to use. Eight buttons, easy to access, nice intuitive layout. It's my favourite joypad yet. Now, I have got a Saturn behind me, and I think I talked to you while I was modding this Saturn... And I made the comment that the inside is made out of tissue paper and wasps. Yeah. It is a bit plasticky. And in fact, I actually think the UK Sega Saturn feels a bit more solid. But yeah, it creaks. It does creak a lot more than I think the SNES did or the Mega Drive did, and certainly more than the PlayStation did. And when you open it up, there is something that you don't really see that much of in the PlayStation or the SNES, or indeed the Mega Drive. There are wires. It's not all circuit board mounted. There's a lot of void inside the Saturn. I mean, there's even more inside this one because the optical drive's been taken out and replaced with an SD card reader. But even before that, there was a lot of void inside it. I mean, there was enough space in there to fit a mod chip, like a big old chunky circuit board still with plenty of space left to go. So I kind of see where they're coming from. But moving on to Rise of the Robots. Craigie. Uh, I mean, let's celebrate this moment, Ash, because this may be the last time that Rise of the Robots comes up on this podcast. I hope it is. I really hope it is. Oh, but it's been such a wonderful journey, Ash, going from the hype that we had from Series 3, getting it as a final challenge, and then getting it sort of dunked upon in Series 4. Can't wait to hear more about this. This is not a positive review. Is it? I'm surprised. The SNES version, which gets the two-page spread, is reviewed by Les the Poor Bastard, and he says in an ideal fantasy world, Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter would be rock-hard people made up of everything that made those games great. They would have slaves. Things like Art of Fighting would wash the dishes. Fatal Fury would be allowed to wash clothes and some would be allowed to clean up their respective houses. Of course, there could well be some who weren't even good enough for those menial jobs. Games whose publishers made sure that no reviews would appear until long after the game was released. So, after two years of constant hype, Rise of the Robot finally arrives. The thinking man's beat-em-up, eh? Let's check it out. Well, Mortal Kombat 2 is great, isn't it? Loads and loads of moves, all that hidden stuff, incredible graphics and a wide choice of characters. Street Fighter 2's fab as well. Three versions, loads of characters, tons of moves and incredible gameplay. You've got two great beat-em-ups on the snares without even dipping into the average ones. Here's Rise of the Robots, and it's slightly impressive PC-rendered graphics. We'll forget about the sound for now, as it's not that hot. Let's look at the moves. Oh, how does less than 10 sound? Not all that impressive, but in two-player mode, you get four super moves. Are you impressed yet? (laughs) Nah, nor me. You can only choose one character in the one-player game, and only one player gets a choice in the two-player. I can tell you're not impressed. I mean, that's it. These are the selling points of Rise of the Robots. It doesn't measure up to Super Street Fighter 2 or Mortal Kombat 2, and if your game doesn't measure up to those two, then it ain't gonna sell. It may have the looks, but so does a tiger, and you wouldn't want to get near that, would you? Rise is overhyped, overpriced, outrageously bad beat-em-up. If you've already bought it, that'll teach you. Wait until you see the review here first. If you haven't, then for God's sake, don't. And don't say we didn't warn you. I love that line in there. I mean, there's a lot to love about that review, so well done, Les. But the line that I absolutely loved in there, which is the most damning of all the lines, is that they weren't allowed to review the game until after it had come out. That is when whoever is releasing this knows that the game is bad because film studios do this a lot i used to encounter this quite a bit in my when i used to run a film website is that if a film is bad 
you're not allowed they won't do press screenings or you have to release the review after the, like a day after the film has come out i mean they even give it a box out here tim tucker because you know you can't get enough boots in on this one tim says i hate giving things bad reviews i really do it upsets me i'd much rather talk about how great things are unfortunately i haven't got a chance of finding anything positive to say about this game it's just got nothing to offer apart from the pc style graphics which have been implemented rather well i can't believe it took this long to put together remember when we first previewed this years ago in the meantime a fine conversion of mortal kombat 2 has graced the shelves super street fighter 2 finally arrived in its turbo form and samurai showdown has arrived on the 3do the least recommended game i've seen in a long time i'm afraid Remember that preview that we read? I think it was from maybe the summer CES or maybe it was the winter CES from Sega that called it, I mean, it's unfinished at the moment, but when it gets finished, it's going to be really good. And what they didn't realize there was, no, that was the finished product. You cannot polish a turd, even if it's CGI rendered. Oh man, two whole years that we have been talking about this game and waiting for its release, only for it to be just awful. Review score-wise, graphics... 90%, which is fair. It's the only redeeming thing the game has. And they also say they look close to their PC and 3DO counterparts. Sound, 50. Mm. In-game effects are laughably bad, but I suppose the music is mildly interesting for a few seconds. I was going to say, I've heard the soundtrack a lot because we've talked about it a lot on this show when I'm editing it, and it's not good. I'm I'm sorry that you're hearing it in the background of this. Mental note, don't listen to this episode. (laughs) Gameplay... 40. Oof, that's low. Not very many moves and no hidden stuff. This gets dull and feels like a very limited beat-em-up. Lifespan, 45. What do you know? It's a limited beat-em-up after all. It'll keep you interested as long as an ice cube in a kettle. Overall score, 45%. It's only as good as its lifespan. Oh, man. I mean, to be honest, that's slightly higher than what I thought it was going to be. I only thought it was going to get around 40, given what they gave it for the gameplay. But no, 45 is what they get. However, over the page, we get Will Groves. He's reviewing the Amiga 600 version. Well, I'm sure this will be grand. I'll just skip to the scores on this one, because really, we have wasted far too much time on this game. Although I will say, this game is provided on 13 floppy disks, which you will have to change every time you change a fight, or every time you move across a level. Lot of admin. Lot of admin, lot of shuffling, and I tell you what, a lot of changing means the discs are likely to break a lot more quickly as well. Mm-hmm. Graphics, 85. They're quite nice, but don't move particularly well, and there are some glitches. Sound, 60. Nothing much beyond the odd smack or creak, so not even getting any music on the Amiga 600 version. You're welcome. Gameplay, 20. Oh, that is devastatingly low. As a beat-em-up, this is appalling. No variety, no control, no point. Lifespan, 20. Too many discs to shuffle and too little fun to keep you at it. Will says even if this hadn't been trailed so much, it would have been worthy of a kicking. In fact, it's only the pre-publicity that gets it a place in the mag at all. 30% overall. Crikey. Yeah, that 30% is kind of what I was thinking the SNES version might get. So, yeah, you know, you done well there to get 45 And talk about opportune advertising, though, and maybe the only people to make a positive out of this is opposite the Amiga review is an advert for Clay Fighter. (sighs) Lennox Lewis versus Bad Mr. Frosty. I literally don't know what they're actually advertising there. They seem to be implying that Lennox Lewis is going to fight Bad Mr. Frosty from Clay Fighters. He might have done. Weird flex, but there you go. 
But there you go. That's how to round out a season of magazines, Luke. We could have talked about the Saturn. We, we could look to that four-page review of Virtue of Fighter. We could have even talked about the Smurfs getting 85% in this very magazine or Super Punch-Out getting only 84%. Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo on the 3DO, that got 97%. But no, we just spent a good chunk of time talking about Rise of the Robots. You're welcome, Internet. Welcome to the final Games Master of this series. Yes, the powers that be have decided that too much fun can't be held. And so, from next week, there'll be something slightly poorer on in this time slot. Well, here we are. Don't let the people tell you that the gore special is part of Series 4. Dominic Diamond tells you right here. This is the final episode of the series. And, yeah, as, as much as I have not enjoyed series four as much as i've enjoyed previous series we've kind of talked about that uh, a bit in previously and we'll talk about it even more when we get to the final series wrap up there was uh, there was a pang of like sadness in me and i got a massive pang of sadness right at the end when the goblin waved goodbye yeah really that's it i mean we know dom's back next season because hey guess what we can look into the future because it's 20 odd years in the past but saying goodbye to the goblins was genuinely heartbreaking on this episode and I'm with you. I don't think I've enjoyed this quite as much as the past seasons, even season three, purely because season three started new era really badly with the way it treated Dominic. But it started with a new era and a new idea. And then halfway through, they changed everything. But it was a clean break. One week we were doing things this way. The next week, it's the team championships. And we're following that format all the way through to the end with one brief trip to Christmas Land and the Panto Special. And season four has also been all change again. Dex is out, Dom is in, but they are also still trying to work out what kind of show they want to be. We start very traditional and then we change things and now we've got features and we've got multiple features and we've got two challenges and there were some odd editing choices in those early episodes. And mm-hmm. it's it's been... It's like going back to season one. A little bit. It's finding its feet of what it's trying to be. But let's see what they produce for our final episode of this run and get into our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My first challenge promises some top arcade antics. As contestants slug it out on the action-packed, beat-em-up, dark stalkers. The two characters I selected, Wolf and Bishano, and equipped with some effective special moves and should provide an entertaining bout of fisticuffs. This is pretty rad, though. You're getting to see Darkstalkers on Games Master. Oh, no, it's not Darkstalkers, mate. Did you not hear what the Games Master said? It's Dark Stalkers. Yeah, so it's two words, like Duck Tales. Yes. Darkstalkers, the Night Warriors. We've got the Werewolf, John Talbane, the Samurai Bishamon. I, it should make for an entertaining bout of fisticuffs. It surely will, because, dear Lord, this is built on the same engine as Street Fighter 2, but it looks some level above it. Yeah, it really does. It's got that wonderful, like, uh, Capcom would use this 
sort of style for future iterations of uh, Street Fighter series, the 2D fighters, and really like felt like they feel drawn more than sort of like the pixel art things. Yeah, there's a real animation flair to this with the characters, and it's something that I think carries through the Darkstalkers series quite well. Oddly, this game has two conflicting stories as regarding its origins. A producer called Alex Jimenez said that it started out as a Universal Monsters game, but the licensing fell apart, so they replaced it with original creations. Meanwhile, art director Akira Yasuda says that a colleague of his was the one who came up with the idea of a monster fighting game, and then it was given form by planner Junichi Ono, who Yasuda had worked with together on Captain Commando. Two very different origin stories there. Mm. I've no idea which one is true. I'm leaning towards the latter because I can't quite see this being a licensed Universal Monsters game. I don't think they'd have gone for that. Well, also, because it's 1994 going on 1995, who gives a sh about the Universal Monsters at this time, other than me? I was going to say, I can't see this being a case of Universal approach them being like, we want to do a beat-em-up featuring our characters. I This had to be an original idea. At the time this was made a lot of fighting games were all kind of following the same tropes with regards to their fighters. You had a martial artist, you had a Ryu or a Ken. I mean, you look at the whole SNK, Capcom fighters, there was a lot of repetition, a lot of rip-offs, a lot of lawsuits waiting to happen. And it was something they really tried to change with this game. The characters were really unique. No two were alike, not in this game. And, and some of them are designs that have become iconic within Capcom that have transcended the Darkstalkers series and appeared in other games as well. Yeah. There was even a Darkstalkers animated TV show in America. Yeah, there was. Like they did, This game was pretty big. Like, you know, they did comic books, they did books, there were soundtracks and this and the other. Like, Morrigan became a, a iconic character in Capcom's lineup of, like, you know, of their rogues gallery of, of you know, people to feature in other games. You know, she was in a lot of the Marvel vs. Capcom games. She has become a big player within the Capcom community and people love morrigan like i've gone to many conventions and and to this day will still people seeing cosplaying as that character yeah i mean there will be people cosplaying as that character that will have never played a dark stalkers game yeah. and that's not a criticism you don't need to if you see a design and you want to realize it in real life you go for it yeah and this you know this game had a bunch of sequels it, this i think this version is on the saturn it's only on the playstation this became a, a nice big hit for capcom in their fighting realm oh we well, mentioned ports luke Guess what? 32, was it 32X? Was that the one? Yeah, really? and it was yes, cancelled. Yes, that's it. I, I was trying to remember which one it was. I knew it was like there was on one of the... I was I was, I was going to say either that or it would have been the 3DO. Do you know who did the conversion for the PlayStation? Is it Psygnosis? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because Capcom looked at the PlayStation hardware and went, we have not got a fucking clue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you guys do it? You're already doing great things. Although it was very much delayed. It was originally planned for an April 95 release on the PlayStation... And then it didn't actually appear until after the sequel had come out on the Saturn. So they, they got pushed way back. But I do remember playing this on the PlayStation. Yeah. And I did like my 2D fighting games because you had this, you had the Alphas. Rival School. Rival School. You had some good times on there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, the PlayStation was also my first experience in, in a Darkstalkers game. And yeah, and I really, really enjoyed it. But just mentioning on that TV series, ran for 12 episodes, which is hilarious because they were really, really big on it. Capcom's director of licensing said, that, you know, oh, it's got an enormous built-in audience of young arcade players, colourful range of fun but spooky characters who lend themselves so well to animated television. We're confident that Darkstalkers will be a big hit with kids everywhere. 
This show will make it hip to be scared. Mate, no one says hip in 1994. No, that's got big wah, wah, wah written all over it. It's this decade's answer to the popular Ghostbusters sensation of the 1980s. Fuck me, everyone is looking for a Ghostbusters. They always were. Sony were always after it. Turns out everyone was trying to emulate it. Oh, man. I mean, you've got to appreciate the ambition, I suppose. But the game was included in the Darkstalkers collection, a compilation of all five Darkstalkers arcade games that was released in Japan only for the PlayStation 2. The original PlayStation version was also put out on the PlayStation Network, which was compatible with both the PS3 and the PlayStation Portable which means in a roundabout way, the best way to play a version of it now might be on a PlayStation Vita using a hooky copy of the PlayStation Network version of the PS1 original. Or, you know, MAME. Please welcome our first challengers today, Gil Kaiden and Stephen Coughlin. Gil, what kind of music are you into? Heavy metal. Heavy metal. Um, let's talk about hair and heavy metal, um, because they're very hirsute fellows, uh, all these guys. What's your favourite heavy metal hairstyle? Um, no hair. No hair? Yeah, it's the best. Who's got no hair in heavy metal? Scott Ian's from Anthrax. Right, and you're into the no hair thing. You don't like all the ringlets and yeah. stuff like that. All right, that's fine. We're, we're happy with that. Now, Stephen, um, you want to be an actor? Yeah, trying to. Yeah, go on then, do some acting. Blank. That's very good though, I like that, that was uh, acting a blank. And uh, what kind of roles though would you like to do? Serious roles, uh, comedy roles, cheese action roles? Action roles. Action roles. Action roles, action roles. Better Sylvester Stallone? Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger, I can see it, I can see it, the likeness. Okay. <laughs> All right then. Uh. We have got Gil and Stephen as our players today, and Gil is my pick to win because he's into heavy metal. And Dominic Diamond, smart-ass Dominic Diamond, thinks he's got all the answers, talking about how it's all about hair and crimped hairstyles and stuff. And Gil just goes, no. Like, yeah, it is. Like, what's your favorite? Then he's like, no, the shaved heads. There are no people in metal with shaved heads. He's like, yeah, there is Ian Scott from Anthrax. Yeah, yeah, eat that, Dom, you clever prick. See, my brain went, oh, and also Rob Halford from Judas Priest, but I'm not sure if he was actually shaved head by this point or not, because he did have hair through a period of the band, and I think of him now with the shaved head. Metal isn't all about the hair, although a lot of it is. <laughs> yeah, a lot of it was in the 80s. And even into the 90s, there was still quite a lot of hair because like where you have that grunge metal crossover, there was also a lot of hair. You look at Kurt Cobain, you look at... Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl, you look at Pearl Jam. All of Corn. Soundgarden. It was just a bit more variety uh, once he got into the midnights and stuff. Dom. But I, I felt bad for, for Stephen when he turns to him because Stephen wants to be an actor. And so Dom just goes like, we'll do some acting then. It's like, what do you expect him to do? To be honest, he must have done a couple of monologues. He must have something. He could have busted out some Shakespeare, some King Lear. Drop a bit of Hamlet. Maybe a soliloquy. To be or not to be. Not to be. D Dom thinks he did a great job at acting completely blank and asks him what roles he's interested in. Does he want to do comedy roles, serious roles, cheese roles? Stephen completely misses the cheese rolls line, which I think is a shame. It's a wasted line on him. I laughed. Yeah. He'd have been eating with Miracle for sausage rolls. Mmm, sausage rolls. But anyway, Stephen wants to do action and of course defaults to mentioning Arnold because that's all anyone seems to mention when it comes to sodding action movies, even if Dom tries to lead them down a different path. And Dom's like, well, I can see the resemblance, he says, to the ginger white kid from England. Exactly, yeah, who was about, like, you know, 80 pounds soaking wet. 
Although Stephen does go, yeah, well, I've been bulking up, which Dom got a laugh, I got a laugh, but yeah. I wish it had been better caught on microphone. First, news of a new system aiming to make record stores a thing of the past, the digital jukebox. Choose the single you want on your PC, and about 10 minutes later, it'll come via the phone lines onto your hard drive, ready to be played as many times as you can bear. The system can store up to 400,000 songs, and it's hoped that it'll cost as little as 40 pence a single, and with unsigned band tracks available free. Whether you'll be able to get take that or Oasis this way, depends Depends on whether record companies concerned think the profit margins are big enough. Don't hold your breath. Do you know what, Ash? The idea of going onto a website or the internet and being to uh, download singles at a small, affordable price and they just get saved to your hard drive, I can't see this catching on at all. Nah, it'd be crazy. I can't even imagine it, Luke. I mean, this is a world of the future that never happened that they're showing us here. Exactly. A world that's also died of death as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is essentially pre-iTunes. This is, you know, Amazon Music, pre-Amazon Music. This is 1994 Digital Jukebox, a place where you can go onto the internet and download songs for 40p a single. And it just gets downloaded over your phone line and saved onto your hard drive. This is this is literal, like, of the future type things. And they, it is a idea that wouldn't be fully realized until 10, 15 years after this piece airs. This Cerberus digital jukebox that they're showing us here, it didn't like hugely take off. But that's not to say it was rejected because Sony did consider buying this at some point. They actually seriously investigated the company to go, is this worth us basically taking the technology of and using it to sell music? And I find that fascinating because you think of so many music labels as being very resistant to the internet. But Sony were clearly thinking ahead a bit. I think that's a really smart move on their part because, like, even if this didn't work, buying the infrastructure is a really a, a smart thing to do. Like, that's someone who has done a lot of the legwork already there for you. But if this was the promo video they were using to advertise this service to potential investors and record labels and studios and whatnot, man, it's no wonder it died to death. This this does not. This, this looks awkward. We're trying to be hip with the kids stuff. Oh, absolutely, it is. Yeah, and also like Dom has got a line in here that really emphasizes as to why this was never going to work at this point. Record labels will not see the profits. And if they don't see the profit, then they don't see the points. I want to provide material for the kids that's going to bring them closer to Christ. There's so much out there that's negative and, and destructive. Indeed, the latest craze over in the States for those people tired of antisocial games is for more religious adventures, exemplified by titles like this one. Defender of the Faith, in which you play the youthful King David and have to prove your mettle by, amongst other things, slaying Goliath. And, of course, if religious games are big in the States, it won't be long before they'll be over here too. Oh, God, I can't wait to see this guy show up in the MCU. Captain Bible! It's quite embarrassing, isn't it, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these are all these sort of Bible games and things like that. They're massive in the States. I want to say massive, like, you know, amongst the Christian community and stuff. Gamers have very much enjoyed getting their hands on them, though, and, like, playing through, you know, Super Noah's Ark 3D and all this sort of stuff to show, like, isn't this weird? Like, they had this Doom clone, but it was based on Noah's Ark, and you've got to go around and putting animals to sleep and stuff. This is kind of like a, a bit of a, a piss take of that, really, where they're just sort of, like, making fun of these games that you can buy. Like, Dom says, like, oh, yeah, they'll be over here at some point, but that was never really the case. I do want to talk a bit about this guy we see at the beginning, though, Peter Engelbright, who I immediately didn't like. Not because he's making religious games. You know what? You want to make religious games? Make religious games. But it is kind of profiteering off of a 
bad and religion at the same time. And yeah. I'm fairly certain there was shit in the Bible about not doing that. I mean, I'm not terribly religious. You do what you want with your beliefs as long as it doesn't harm me or don't try and force it onto me. But also this very much felt like it was trying to be forced onto me of the time and make video games, which were the cool thing, a tool for recruitment. Mm, yeah. Now, I actually did a bit of digging. I don't know if Peter is still out there. Uh, he was ill a couple of years ago. Uh, his wife, who also, I don't know if she's still around, was also involved in religion. I believe she was, um, she worked in religious academia, publishing papers and books and whatnot, and had a son. I could find a couple of people with the same name as the son, one of whom looked like he actually designed RPGs, which are definitely in the Dungeons and Dragons role. I kind of hope that's him because I remember the satanic panic thing. And therefore I'm like, oh, I hope he just fell far from the tree but it got me looking into this guy's credit and we do have various religious based games including captain bible in the dome of darkness but also before then california games summer games winter games todd's adventures in slime world this guy had a gaming career he wasn't just kind of religious shovelware dude he did actually produce real games i guess it's like a career trajectory that almost makes sense really you know you're making these games like summer games and california games california games a game i actually very much enjoyed and then you're like well maybe i could use these skills for good I could use these skills for for better. You know, it's, it's not too dissimilar to what Tom Kalinsky felt with the Pico, which is just that why aren't we using our infinite resources here to make educational tools? And so I kind of, I kind of like, I started feeling quite hostile towards him, and I saw the other games he worked on, and I'm just like, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe it's not so bad. I mean, you know, he did make the Hacky Sack game in California Games for the 2600, so you know, there's that going for him. But then. I found out that in 2004, he created a 3D adventure game called Vote for Bush. Oh, bloody hell. Help Uncle Sam discover why President George W. Bush should be re-elected. I mean, that's how Bush got the votes, right? It was through the evangelicals. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, no, into the fucking sea with him. You contributed a lot to gaming and even the religious games. Maybe your heart was in the right place. But oh, political propaganda via a video game, mate. That's not cool. Yeah. That's pretty dog shit. And I did see this synopsis which said, the primary goal of Vote for Bush is to find the Statue of Liberty and follow her instructions. She will ask you to find the ignorant and teach them the truth. These are the people you will find scattered throughout the world. You must answer their questions for them to learn the truth. Once they have all found the truth, you can return to Liberty to finish the game. Along the way, you'll be collecting stars which will enable you to use power-up paintings. These gold-framed paintings will give you the ability to fly and can also give you stealth and armor capabilities. You will gather keys, allowing you to unlock doors. I mean, this sounds like a potential future stream. No. <laughs> this is a review I found of it. Vote for Bush will probably appeal to those who voted for him in the election, and the gameplay is such that it will probably be enjoyed by others as well. So, so the review there says that it will appeal to people who've already voted for Bush, so they're useless because you've already got their vote. I mean, they could have meant for the first term. Okay, and then it was just like, and it will also appeal to people who didn't vote for him, or it would appeal to others. Yeah, and I'm not sure it would. So it will appeal to all then? Maybe. It looks <laughs> terrible. I'm sh the sad thing is, is I'm like, you know what? I could download it. Maybe I could nominate this for HG101. They'd hate that. But the problem is, if I nominated it for HG101, I would then have to appear on it. 
which means I'd have to play it. And I'm not doing it, Luke. I'm not going back to the bad place. And finally, the big film hitting cinemas this week is the futuristic space adventure Stargate. And for the first time, those that like it can buy a CD-ROM about its making. For 30 quid, you can wander around computer-generated versions of the set, find out how the special effects were made, and even decide which questions to put to stars like Kurt Russell, such as, Kurt, why the cack hair? Answer, it goes with the film. Well, this is what I am here for, and I absolutely love this sort of thing. This is DVD bonus features before there were DVD bonus features. This is CD-ROM making of certain movies. So, like, you, this is one for Stargate, and it takes you on sort of, like, virtual tours of the set. You can ask the crew and, and stars questions and things like that. You can get clips and whatnot. I love this. I mean, this was a proper in-depth making of, but also history, because they didn't just go, and this is publicity for the film, you can ask Kurt Russell about his hair, whatever. They also put in fairly chunky sections on Egyptian history, including how some of Egyptian history ties into the mythology they created for the film. That's that's pretty cool. And I also think Dominic is right. I think Kurt Russell's hair in that film is a bit cack. Oh, it's very, very cack. And I think there were a couple of titles like this. I can't remember what other films got it, but I'm 99% certain that Stargate was not the only one. But by 97, 98, this is what we were getting on DVDs. Yeah, that's the problem. It's like the DVD essentially kills this market. And now even the extras in the DVD market is beginning to die off. It's one of those crazy things. The big films are not getting the fully laden special features. Older films, anniversary editions, and the weirdish niche cult crap will get like, you know, three times as much extra features as the runtime of the movie. It's a great time to be a fan of genre fiction. But also, you know, sometimes I do want to find out how a new film has been made and I don't want to have to trawl around YouTube and see countless IGN bumpers just to get at it. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you and I are not the first person to be saying this onto a podcast. And also I feel like we're just sort of like adding to a conversation that's already there. But just put these special features onto streaming services. Like Disney Plus do have some commentaries. Like they've got the commentary tracks for the uh, Avengers Endgame and Infinity War. I know the commentary tracks exist for other movies in the MCU. Just put those up as well. And the biggest issue with Disney and the way they do it is it's not always bloody obvious that they've got special features. They've got deleted scenes and makings of for some of their films, not that you will easily find them in the actual entries for the films on the service. Right, uh, what's the title? Oh, it's, uh, it's Hanky's on the head time. It means it's Dave Perry. Dave, where does the bandana sleep at night? The bandana sleeps, it sleeps just beside my bed. It's got its own little closet room. It's got television in there. It, it, I look after it, I look after my bandanas. Okay, and uh, special moves, Dave, once more, please. Well, John Talbain is a wolf and Gil will be playing as him. He has a fireball move. He also has a howling at the moon wolf move, which acts like a dragon punch as he leaps upwards. And then Bishamu is a samurai and he tends to use his sword. He can throw that or he can slice in a very wide arc around himself. Well, it's a fighting game, so of course, Dave Perry is in the booth with us to tell us what happens to his bandana when he takes it off at night. Oh, it's got its own little closet and bed, its own TV. He looks after his bandanas, Luke. And he also says one of my lines I was going to use as my intro line, which is, it's hankies on head time. It's not quite as good as it's clobbering time, but I'll let it go. So Gil was obviously my pick to win this. He's a metalhead like myself, so I want him to win. And I think that he is the better player of the two as well. But when you get to the third round, he is doing the jump kick sweep uh, maneuvering while uh, Steven is essentially just jabbing out the samurai sword, almost using just like medium punches just to like ward him away, essentially. 
But at least Gil makes efforts to do the special moves. And Gil takes the first round, though it was very close. The second round was so close, it came down to next move wins. And Steven just about gets a jab in there. And in the third round, Gil's like, I've had enough of this. Jump, kick, sweep, jump, kick, sweep, jump, kick, sweep. That's with it. And even then, it still came down very close to the wire. Yeah, I mean, I'm just actually looking at the special moves for this game, and I'm looking at the moves for Bishamo, and, oh, let's see. He's got a couple of charge moves, but also then, like, his his main move, one of his main moves seems to be the forward, down, down, forward, which can be an absolute asshole to do. He's got an air move that involves a quarter circle from the jump position down. He's got the 180, so back all the way through to forward, which can be a bit of a dick to get the continuous full smooth motion, particularly because, like we said about the super gun and the joysticks they're using, they're bulky old boxes. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not necessarily boxes that are designed to be played on the lap. And yet his other move is a 360 circle plus a medium punch. So I'll be honest, I don't blame him for doing the jabbity-jab-jab. Yeah, he's essentially been given a Zangief-type character. And if you are only a fireball-type player, it's no good to you whatsoever. I feel like maybe they would have been better off. Maybe they wanted to show like the big, bulkier characters, but I think they might have been better off showing Morrigan or something like that. Maybe. I mean, just I just looked at uh, John Talbane as well, and he's got two charges, so back forward. He's got a standard fireball with a punch, which is the beast cannonball, which is the one that we see a couple of times. Yep. He also has the ability to do that diagonally, as well as diving from the air via a different variation on the input. And yeah, he's also got a full quarter circle, but his starts at the front and goes to the back, which I generally find easier to do than the half circle forward. Yeah. So he did get the slightly more nimble, slightly easier to do the moves, which you can tell by the fact that he does hit moves yeah i was gonna say you can tell just by watching it that he's got the character that is easier to pick up again that's probably why you know maybe they'd be better off putting morrigan in there instead of the samurai guy because it's just morrigan is a quarter circle type character it's a fireball type character i mean they could have had felicia versus talbane that would Mm -hmm. have also worked they could have had morrigan versus felicia morrigan versus talbane there are a number of different combinations they could have gone with that might have provided a bit more of a balanced fight so it goes the game still looks great. Oh, it looked so good. It looks so cool as well. Like a really good, nice animated backgrounds as well. It's not classic gameplay, but also this game won't be one that they've had as much time with as Street Fighter. But the fight is entertaining. The fact it gets so close actually really ups attention. Dom and Dave do lose interest in what's actually happening in the game and they get more concerned with the dog in the background that's getting a little bit overexcited. Now, they talk about how like the dog is uh, essentially getting worried for the wolf. I guess canines stand together. Yeah, that was quite close, really, wasn't it? But it was uh, the, the special moves, I think, made the difference in the end. Uh, give us give us your opinion of the fight. It's a good fight. That's one heck of an opinion there, Gale. Yeah. Well, yeah. That was the best, so I won. You were? Yeah. I, I can't I can't fault you with that opinion. Uh, Stephen, give us your excuse. Well, it was close. And that's what yeah. I can say. No, that's not an excuse. That's, that's uh, I don't know what that is, but it's not an excuse. What is it? Well, we're more in practice, so... Yeah. Oh, well, that's all right then, Stephen, because you're more in practice, but Gil gets the joystick and you're happy that way. Yeah. Like, I think I can understand Dom's frustration there because he teed him up for something a lot better than he got back. Yeah. But also, I don't think Dom was right when he said, like, it was the special moves that won you the fight there because it really was. It were those jumping kicks and sweeps that got him that win. But Stephen's excuse for losing, it was close. And Dom quite rightly points out that's not an excuse. No. I mean, good for you, Stephen. You won more in practice. Gil's getting the joystick, you're not. But hey, at least you didn't get rinsed over having a 12-year-old girlfriend. Exactly. Could have been worse. 
that one from last week's going to haunt me for a while. I think it will haunt him for the rest of his life. Get on your bike, as some bloke once said, so saddle up with Cheeky Norm for a dose of Road Rash 3. And they've actually taken the sprites from the 3DO version and scaled them down to fit on the Mega Drive. In terms of gameplay, there's only really one new option, and that's that um, you can climb on another opponent's bike when he gets knocked off. If you've already got a Road Rash game, um, don't bother buying this. The Road Rash 3 has got a split-screen two-player mode. It's slightly faster and better looking than the preceding two games, but virtually the same game. People who have motorbikes are, are sure to love this sort of game. Not fair, not nice, but uh, pretty good fun nonetheless. Into the reviews, we are opening things up with Road Rash 3, which very coolly uses the sprites from the 3DO game and shrinks them down into Mega Drive bytes. Um, which I think is it's pretty cool. It makes the game look a little bit different to its uh, two predecessors. But the problem is, as Frank O'Connor points out, is that, yeah, while it is faster than Road Rash 1 and 2, it's basically still Road Rash 1 and 2. And it's just aging in the end going like, yeah, it's okay, 80%. Do you know why it shrank down the elements from the 3DO Road Rash? Because they were cool and they were there? Well, they were very literally there. These games were developed at the same time. This yeah. was being developed at exactly the same time as the 3DO, so they essentially shared assets to save on production costs like it would have actually cost them more if they'd done the conversion after the 3do version had finished gone gold and been released this game did begin to come about because of the frustration experienced by some of the producers and programmers while they were working on michael jordan chaos in the windy city and they were like oh this is fucking dog shit. can we make another road rash game please and they were like yeah, yeah. All right Oh, this was the one with the time with Monster Magnet. Well, Monster Magnet did um, a lot of the soundtrack for Road Rash and the 3DO. Basically, this tied into the competition to win an, a grand prize consisting of an all-expenses-paid trip for the winner and a guest to go to San Francisco in June to see a concert performed by Monster Magnet, who were featured in the 3DO and Sega CD versions of Road Rash. And the winner would get to meet the band backstage, receive an autographed copy of their latest album, Dopes to Infinity, and they'd also get a Mega Drive and a copy of Road Rash 3. So they wouldn't even get the best version. It's not like they were getting, you know, they clearly didn't talk to Trip Hawkins to get a 3DO. Not even get the Sega CD. I was about to say they had a deal with Sega, but even then you could have got the Sega CD. Can't even give them away. At least you're still selling Mega Drives. I'm sure I'm not the only one whose pants have been pooed waiting for LucasArts Star Wars shoot 'em up, but has Dark Forces been worth the wait? Well, the first things I, uh, I noticed about this game is just like the attention to detail it is absolutely brilliant. However, um, there's no blood in it, there's no chainsaws, you know, I mean, what can I say? Doom rules. The graphics are actually better than Doom. It's a little faster and a little smoother. What this game adds to the Doom scenario, though, is strategy. Instead of just shooting everything, you actually have a mission to accomplish, which is to steal the plans for the Death Star. It's actually more impressive technically than Doom or Doom 2, simply because you have more depth of vision. Not only can you look straight ahead, but you can also look up and down. You can jump up steps. And there's a wider variety of terrains that you have to get through. Oh, Dom is apparently sh his kex waiting for this next one. Was it worth it? I mean, yeah, we have talked about this a bunch in Series 4 because we've had it in the news. We had Dom go and see it being made at LucasArts. And here it gets a whopping 95% score. And yeah, you can say the D word all you want. Adrian brings it up. The fact that this has got no gore, it's got no chainsaws, therefore it's not as good. But Frank O'Connor and Tim Tucker are the voice of reason here. It's more detailed than Doom. It's got better graphics than Doom. It's more impressive than Doom and Doom 2. 95% man. The Star Wars Dark Forces. Fantastic score. What an absolute 
whopper. Great game. Still looks fun. Still sounds fun. Still just a great game to see. Look, there's one. Set for a stun. Also, you can jump in it. Exactly. There's so much more that you can do that you couldn't do in Doom. Like, all it has in comparison with Doom is that it is an into-the-camera shooter. It certainly looks different, but is Uniracer's original and addictive or just plain silly, childish and immature? The simple objective is to reach the end of the, the course and uh, you have to beat the computer player or your human opponent into player mode. Um, in order to build up speed, you have to perform a series of stunts. You can do flips and somersaults and spins and all kinds of stuff like that. I found it quite simply one of the best two-player games I've found in ages. It's totally addictive. Um, you learn as you go, and as you find new tricks and new somersaults to do, it becomes even more uh, compelling. You're just trying to race each other to the end, and you know you might just get picked with a post, and it's really annoying, especially when you know someone who you know you can beat just tips you with like, a little extra move. It's pretty annoying, but great fun. And finally, in the review zone, it's a game that has almost become uh, ubiquitous with this show because we mentioned it a lot. Uniracers is finally here, and this also gets a very good score of ninety percent. Good week for the review zone after the last few weeks where we haven't had like a, a tip-top game and yeah this is like you know tim saying one of the best two-player games in ages which is remarkable considering you know street racer was reviewed not that long ago and they're still raving about that today and you can tell how things went down in the review room when they were playing this because you got adrian there going you're just trying to race each other to the end and it's really when you get pipped to the post at the end it's really annoying it's really annoying. It definitely didn't happen to me. It's really annoying. I and you're just yeah. like, which one of Frank and Tim were consistently beating him enough for him to make this the focal point of his review? I wrote in my notes this, Tim. Only because Tim had the line before saying, it's one of the best two-player games I've played in ages. And then cuts to Adrian being like, apart from when people pip you at the post, like, yeah, I bet you it was Tim. Yeah, Tim thinks it's a great game because he kept winning at it, <laughs> exactly, which to be fair, that's yeah. a good reason. Yeah, Uni Race is a game I don't think I've given enough credit to on this show previously. I need to go and play this again, really, and really like give it a fair shake of the stick. For home reviewers out there, this week's GameLine game is Scottish Open Golf. You can download a demo of this PC game by connecting your modem to 081-558-8937. Apart from the call to London, the service is free, but remember to get permission from whichever fool pays your bills. Well, if you want to play Gloff via your phone line, Games Master can help you play Gloff via your phone line because you can download a demo of Gloff. Yeah, it, it, it's a golf game. Scottish Open Golf, to be precise. Golf. Golf. Well, let's get into our celebrity challenge, shall we? And it's a bit of an infamous one in the world of Games Master. I am something of a practical joker. And my next challenge, Crazy Chase on the Super Nintendo, is full of slapstick hijinks. Players have one minute to collect as many coins as possible while avoiding the host of humiliating hazards that bar their way. I think I'm going to enjoy this. Got to collect as many coins as possible in one minute on Kid Clown in Crazy Chase. Clown, spelt with a K, of course, because it's the 90s. Yeah, it was also developed by Chemco. That's another one with a K. For the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, it was released in North America in September of 1994, Japan in October of 94, and Europe sometime in 1995. It features Kid Clown, again spelt with two Ks, the player character who is tasked with rescuing the Princess Honey from the villain Black Jack. That's Black Jack, not Jack Black. It's got an isometric perspective, which we see, and Kid Clown is constantly pursuing a lit fuse in order to stop it from reaching a spade bomb. It got a re-release on the Game Boy Advance featuring 11 new levels, and the re-release was released in Europe and North America, while a release in Japan was planned but ultimately cancelled. 
At the time of its original release, it got mixed reception from critics, who found it to be inferior to other games of its type. But it did end up with a Japan-only sequel called Kid Clowning Crazy Chase 2 Love Love Hani Sudatsusen, which was released for the PlayStation in 1996. It, um, it doesn't feel of its time does this as a challenge and as a game itself this feels i've used the word series two like this feels series two and so i don't feel like i'm repeating myself but this feels a bit series two i it almost feels like it doesn't belong here in series four it's a weird one to end off like this is our final challenge of the series the the guest does but the challenge itself doesn't feel like the big grand finale yeah but speaking of the guests let's address the awkward awkward elephant in the room who have we got to play this game so now let's jump in whoop for tonight's incredibly special star guest the sexiest thing in ramsey street since madge left natalie embrilia now very excited there that was very coquettish there little coquettish way natalie i want to talk about the pressures of being a sex symbol oh gosh i don't think of myself as a sex symbol no i was talking about me oh sorry I was a very unrehearsed guy, that wasn't that <laughs> no, Do you get stopped in the street? Do you get hassle from people? Yeah, but the haircut's helped a bit. I'm not, not recognisable. Yeah. Do you not like your new hair? Oh, it's okay. I'm getting used to it. Yeah. It's just a nice change. Yeah. When we first interviewed Dominic Diamonds to promote the book, uh, the Kickstarter for the, the book, yeah, that's right. We had the first interview with Dominic Diamond to, uh, to promote the book. What of it? He specifically brought up this interview as one of the really awkward times of celebrities being on the show because he hadn't briefed. Now, he was too afraid to speak to Natalie Imbruglia ahead of recording. He was like too intimidated by her. So he didn't really get to explain what Games Master was like as a show. So when he then goes through and starts to do his Dominic Diamond shtick, she's taken a little bit aback by that he's then thrown off by that and it just creates this really like i don't know skin crawling is like oh i don't really want to look at the screen much and i really need to look away type atmosphere yeah i mean this was still relatively early in her career as well because this was in her first acting phase when she was still in neighbors playing beth who we mentioned when we were talking about the purple column the other week exactly this is pre-torn umbrilia This is before she became a full-time musician with Left in the Middle. It says a lot. I can kind of understand why Dom was intimidated by her because she comes into this and she is dressed, I would say, in a very wholesome manner. She's wearing dungarees. She's wearing a nice kind of white blousy shirt. She looks kids presenter, but at the same time is also drop-dead gorgeous. Like, it's absolutely stunning. And this is with her new short haircut. This is like the, the kind of the pixie cut that she'd only just adapted and it gets mentioned in the interview. But I can genuinely understand why Dom was a bit kind of like shy or a little hesitant because she just, she has this look, you know, she she has this aura to her that even comes through an nth generation VHS copy. And it's clearly like felt by everyone because the kid that plays the game is very like shy and giggly around her, Steve Merritt seems like you know like is very almost intimidated by this and like obviously we've talked about dom and everything it's funny as well you talk about that haircut as well and like they bring up the haircut here she's just not used to it yet as someone who didn't watch neighbors this is how i thought natalie and brulia always looked this is the natalie and brulia look that i'm used to the torn 
Natalie and Brulia. So it was really yeah, fun to see that. It'd be like, yeah, it's a brand new haircut I'm trying out, so I've just got to get used to it. And, and we go into the awkwardness of the interview, and it is a shame, well, it's a shame for a number of reasons that she wasn't briefed on this, because one, it makes it awkward as all hell, but two, I think if she'd been briefed on it, a lot more fun could have been had, because there should have been a great setup off the whole, you know, just want to talk to you about the pressures of being a, a sex symbol. And she's like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't think of myself. And Dom's like, no, no, me. I'm talking about me. That's a really funny line. But because she doesn't know what to expect and because she wasn't briefed, it comes across as awkward and, and kind of like cringy. It's laughed off somewhat awkwardly. And I think she starts to get that this, this show isn't like, it's kind of a bit edgy and a bit off on one. She's not on the big breakfast now. No. And Dom's curious if she gets stopped in the street. That's when she brings up the new haircut, which she's getting used to. And hey, guess what, Luke? It's the last episode of the series, and for once, hair was brought up and it wasn't Dom. <laughs> exactly. Joining Natalie tonight and fulfilling the fantasy of many young boys at his age, please welcome Scott Bradley. Okay. Scott, why are you blushing? <laughs> um, well... You know. <laughs> Listen, Scott, I know you're from Milton Keynes, aren't you, Scott? Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, it's not quite Milton Keynes. It's more near Newport Pagnell, a little village called Stogonton. Right. Does that make a difference? No. If you had to explain to Natalie what makes Milton Keynes such a great place to live, how would you do it? Um, it's because I live there, basically. So you got <laughs> All right. That sounds fair enough. Don wants to know why Scott is blushing, and Scott is very much a Kevin the Teenager here, and he's just like, oh, you know. He also looks like a young John Cena. Yeah, and he's got this big Flintstones jumper thing on, and he's like... Rabadoo. Yeah, exactly. Like, he is... Fruity Pebbles. It is. He is like a little mini John Cena, and he is just... Like, you said Kevin the Teenager there, which is the perfect way to describe him, because he's just like... It's like, why are you blushing? Oh, what do you think? I'm blushing, Mrs. Peterson. And, you know, it's like, where are you from? You're from Milton Keynes. It's not, not quite Milton Keynes. There's a little village just outside Milton Keynes, Mr. Pace. There's a little place called... And it's like, no one cares, mate. Like, Dom's got... Dom just wants to dunk on Milton Keynes. Just say you're from Milton Keynes already. And I will give him credit, though, because he's he does the whole thing where he's like, oh, yeah, no, no, I don't live... In, I live in Stoke Goldington. And Dom's like, oh, does that make a difference? No, <laughs> fine. Move on. <laughs> what makes Milton Keynes so great to live in? And that's where Scott does get his shining moment of, I live there. Oh, I live there. Now, he's got a bit more swagger in his voice when he says it now. I'll give him credit for that one. It was a good line. And while we ruminate on uh, the stories behind other sad British towns, we've got a commercial break. There's cult sci-fi drama next week on 4, paving the way for the return next month of Babylon 5. Catch a special one-off episode next Saturday night at 10.35. In the Sharps January sale, every bedroom is now half price. For your nearest showroom, phone 0800 789 789. Hula, Dr. Rick. Hula to hula. The youth of today is unfulfilled. I'll look into it. I see the problem to hula the hula. Are you fulfilled yet? The yearning chasm of dark hopelessness that haunts the soul is... Oh, lighten up, kids. These things are fun. There's a whole lot of hula in He'll take good care of that. Just like Boots' opticians did with me. Very thorough eye test. The optician made it clear exactly what was right for me. As for frames, it was good to get some advice. Decided on a designer pair. After all, everything in their sales half price. 
Nice to know someone else cares about my eyes. That's really worth something. Half-price frames at Boots Opticians. We care because you do. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Superdraw jackpot, guaranteed at ten million pounds. It's you. Get your ticket now, and it could be you. Yes, yes, yes. It's all right. It's a very special moment for my friend Sam. She's lost three stone with Weight Watchers, and she's just got into a size twelve. You could lose at least six pounds in your first two weeks with the new Weight Watchers program. In fact, if you don't, we'll give you a week free. That's guaranteed. Plus, join now and register free. Save nine pounds. Now, isn't that worth getting excited about? Yes. I don't suppose you have a copy of Fly Fishing by J.R. Hartley. Cousins. Hello. You know the Hornby Double Armada Railway. Do you have an R186 signal box? You can't possibly wear that old thing. You must buy a new one. You're right. What's it for? Showing this. Funny looking video. No! French polishers. It's just possible you could save my life. Good old yellow pages. We can help in all kinds of unexpected ways. Hello, Harpers. Can you transfer some old 8mm Cinefield to video? You can. I'm looking for a Panama, size 7. You have, marvellous. You got one, Mum? You do? Oh, that's wonderful. Happy birthday, Mum. What are we here? My name, oh yes, it's J.R. Hartley. Hello, dear. Hi, Rosemary. Oh, I'm just putting the finishing touches to the chicken and pasta bake you thought George might like. Did you think George would enjoy meeting a few of my old bowling club chums? Yes, I'm sure. Oh, good. I've invited them around for lunch today. Members of the jury, I give you Exhibit A. A jar of Oxo-Mediterranean tomato sauce. The alleged blunt instrument. You have extra sauce. As we 
got a place to ourselves tonight. Shellfish with a Mediterranean marinara sauce. Room for two more. Evening. Get me exhibit A. When the writer of Jurassic Park teams up with a master filmmaker to make television, you'd expect something dramatic. You won't be disappointed. Welcome back. We're very lucky tonight because we have young Scott Bradley and he's playing against neighbor's sex siren Natalie M. Brilliard. The temperature's 10 degrees hotter. It's probably got nothing to do with Scott. First in the queue to join me tonight was Steve Merritt, surprisingly enough, from A-Machines. Hello, Steve. Hey, Dom. Steve, which one of the neighbours' girlies do you fancy the most? Well, Paul Robinson's always been my hero, so like him, I'm going to have the twins. Twins, hopefully they'll get time off from the shampoo commercials. Yeah, they say got clean hair. <laughs> Any tips? What tips have you got for, for Scott and Natalie on this, Steve? Basically, to make the clown run faster, pull the joypad down. That way you're going to get the chance to collect more objects faster. I mean, bumping into things is going to be hazardous, but... If you've got the speed, I reckon you'll crack it. This was another potential inline for me, but the temperature is 10 degrees hotter and it's not because of Scott. But yeah, like this is just here against a Steve American kind of like, I, I don't know. I don't know how Natalie and Brilliant sort of felt about all of this because she is on a set, I would imagine, that's predominantly men. And she's essentially got three men surrounding her. They're just fawning all over her. Yeah, it's like, it is very, it is, it's the entire bloody room is full of Kevin the Teenagers. Yeah. But thankfully, Steve has enough common sense to actually give some advice for the game. Pull down on the joypad to make the climb run faster. You'll collect objects more quickly, but will risk bumping into more obstacles. Scott starts making his way down. And whilst not super fast, he does collect all of the coins, dodges most all of the obstacles until a rope bridge. And at that point, it's, he falls into the water. And as soon as he's fallen into the water, the rhythm's gone and he's screwed. He starts stepping on spikes. He gets set fire to or explodes with a cannonball. It all, it all goes quite wrong. He finishes with eight coins and they cut to him. And he looks like he's just sweated off about three pounds in one minute. And I don't think it's the game because hovering right over his shoulder, hunkered down, is Natalie. I'm just like, I would find that very distracting. I can't even begin to imagine how distracting that was for him. Teenage Laz with one of the most beautiful women on the planet, just like hovering over his shoulder. She was almost like there to put him off. It was like a psych out. But also, you know that even if you don't look at her, you know she probably smelt amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. She's a pro. She would be there. She'd have just the right balance of perfume and hair conditioner and all that jazz. You know, she, she's, she's just absolutely sodding radiant in this thing. Yeah. And, and yeah, he looks, he looks just thankful it's over. He's just like, oh, thank God I can move away from her. Exactly, because he had 24 seconds of a good run. Uh, you know, and like, and as soon as he makes that one mistake, and I think it's like the combination of that one mistake and Natalie and Brulia right over his shoulder, and it goes Pete Tong, something fears, it goes proper nipples north, and he just like, it's almost like he starts running into things. I wonder, did she hunker down behind him just before he hit the rope bridge? <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's what put him off his run because he doesn't do the same thing with Natalie. Like, she sits on the rock to start playing, and he just sort of stands quite far back probably trying to like adjust himself or something. And then, yeah, unfortunately, Natalie's run is like the post 24 second point of Scott's run. And she almost hits every single thing in front of her. And she hits spikes, she hits the log, she hits this, she hits that, she falls in the water. And every time you hit one of these things, you lose such a chunk of time. 
Yeah, I, they do have a proper diamondism line in all of this, though, which is when she falls into the puddle and Dominic Diamond said, That's proper season two era, that that's is. A, that's a real, like, season one, series two era Dominic Diamond line, that. She just hits loads of stuff and ends up with, remarkably, six coins. Scott, I'll start with you. Scott, was your heart beating a little faster towards the end there? Well, yeah, I can stand that bridge and, well, she was doing a bit good, so... Well, I was going to say, you should have been looking at the screen then. She should have won because she was very good. That's very giving of you, Scott. You're obviously after a snog or something, aren't you? Well, of course. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> uh, Natalie, uh, the snog you can sort out in you, you and Scott's own time, but uh, Natalie, I have to tell you, Steve and I were very tired and emotional up there in the box towards the end. Every last drop of energy we had was focused on you. Um, what went wrong? Well, I didn't do too badly. I think I made a few mistakes that couldn't be fixed, but I did okay, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. And, they're, and like they're really going to disagree with you, Natalie. I, am, I, I don't think so. And you can tell that Scott was put off slightly in that first... <laughs> during his game because he says my heart's beating really fast Mrs Peterson well it's having to pump a lot of blood anyway Scott thinks she should have won she was very good and Dom's <laughs> like you are after a snog you sly sly bugger because he's also lying out of his ass as well because she didn't really Natalie's like you know early in early doors in her career though but she's she's still quite the pro she knows exactly what to do here she's like I think I did pretty well didn't I crowd and the crowd go like way and Dom's like well yeah of course the crowd agrees you're Natalie and Brulier who wouldn't agree with you on this front there is some awkwardness to the challenge it's also not a great game which makes it not a great challenge but there was something about it that I kind of very much enjoyed maybe because it was like you know it was prototype Natalie and Brulier it was like you know sort of uh, early version of her but there was something about this that I, I did quite enjoy i think i'd have enjoyed it more if she'd been more in on the joke you yeah know? totally but yeah scott gets his joystick the snog remains an unknown quantity and then we get the filthiest line in this episode of games master right so now it's time for games master's font of knowledge to spray forth in liberal doses as we all splash around in the consultation zone where's this been all this series games master i love all the levels on zero squirrel but is there any way of getting straight to them? Where there's a will, there's a way. Pause the game and enter this code. A-C-R-A-B. You'll receive a gold American Express card accepted in every single one of the zero levels. That should keep you in credit. Thanks a lot, Games Master. Our first lad in the consultation zone here has got the weirdest way of asking for a level select cheat, which is, I love all the levels on Zero Squirrel. Is there a way that I can play them in any order I want to? Uh, yeah, the answer is crabs. Or rather, a crab. Just a, just a singular crab is what you need. And then, in a really weird response, that'll give you the gold American Express card accepted in every one of the levels. Well, it's not accepted everywhere, is it? Not anymore, it's not. Games Master, on King of Fighters 94, I keep on getting beaten up. Give us a hand. When you've been beaten up on this beat-em-up, so much that your character becomes stunned, push B and C together. And you'll find a healthy teammate will come to your rescue, giving you valuable time to recover. Thanks, Games Master. Our next hint here is another very good hint to have, which is if you're being cornered in King of Fighters 94 and you start to get a little bit dazed, if you press B and T together, that brings your tag partner in to make a little bit of a save for you. That's the good tactics 
of King of Fighters 94. This is great stuff in the consultation zone. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of thing that you wouldn't necessarily learn just by looking at the arcade machine. It's a nice little hint, and it could save someone's bacon in a little little bit of a fighting tournament if people aren't too experienced. Great stuff. I think I've seen all the levels on Probotector on the Mega Drive. Can this be so? Well, I just may know of a little secret tranny to poke your nose into. On the level where you're being attacked by the bikers, you will come to a wall with writing on it. Most people shoot the doors here. Don't. Jump above the door and climb the wall, and you'll reach a guard with a question for you. Accept his invitation, and you will find yourself in a hidden arena with some extremely difficult bosses to battle with. You're on your own now. Thanks, Games Master. You've been a real help. And our last entry here for Probotector on the Mega Drive, this is a really fun one. This is a hidden bonus area of the game where you go into the sort of like battle arena thing. It's really rad. Like it's, you have to jump up towards the end of a level rather than going through to a boss. You climb up and there's this ladder goes, would you like to go somewhere different? You say yes and you go through and you basically just fight bosses. This is really cool. If you can never get to this point in Probotector, it's hardly the easiest game in the world. I mean, well, it's a pro protector game. Of course, it's not going to be too easy. That those those games are notoriously hard as fucking nails. Yeah, there really is. The Mega Drive one is no difference. But I guess I don't know if this line that Games Master goes out on was actually intended for the last episode, or if they just felt it it fit well. Where he talks about there are a million other queries out there, and he'd love to see them all. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. In heaven. As you know, I am officially the hardest presenter on Channel Four. This is why I've been invited out. To Los Angeles onto the set of the hardest film of the year, Mortal Kombat, to have a little chat with the boys and girls who are making the film. New Line Cinema, makers of The Mask and Nightmare on Elm Street movies, have pulled out all the stops for Mortal Kombat, making it their highest budget venture to date. It tells the tale of three fighters who are led by Thunder God Raiden to the Outworld, where they must defend the Earth by winning the Mortal Kombat tournament. Our three heroes being Liu Kang, Johnny Cage, and my favourite, Sonya Blade. Now, Bridget, you play Sonya Blade in the movie. Tell me a little bit about what she, what she gets up to in the film. Well, Sonya is the character that is... Um, she's a female that's very strong, that's very tough. Yeah. She's one of those women that, if anything gets in her way, yeah. it doesn't stop her still. And if she needs help, it's like she'll my, like my mom. No really? <laughs> my mum's like that, funny enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you can relate. Um, and she, you know, when they embark upon this um, adventure with uh, characters Johnny and Lou, mm-hmm. she's the... In the beginning, she's the unwilling outcast of the of the group until she kind of really begins to realize what's going on because she has no idea what uh, Mortal Kombat is. The essence of Mortal Kombat is not about death, but life. How hard are you in real life? Are you quite tough in real life outside <laughs> of the film? It depends on if I like you or not. Say Martina Navratilova. Could you take, like, Martina, do you think? Could you take her in a, in a one-on-one situation? Okay, the better question would be, who couldn't I take? Okay. <laughs> the only genuine martial arts expert in the film is Robin Shu, who plays General Top Rope Liu Kang. Uh, Robin, uh, you play Liu Kang, uh, one of the good guys. Is it? Is it really? I mean, a lot of people say, you know, that obviously making films is very, very hard work, but then you got the people saying, no, it's not. It's easy. You just sit around and do a couple of minutes filming and that's it. Oh, it has it been hard? It's uh, pretty hard, pretty hard. Yeah. Especially doing martial arts movie. Mm-hmm. It's so, it is so physical. And people sometimes don't realize that you have to act mm-hmm. and do all these fight sequences. Uh-huh. And that is very strange, I find. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, bearing in mind then that, that you are a martial arts expert, if you were going down a dark alley one night mm -hmm. and the whole of New Kids on the Block were there blocking each end of the alley, okay. what, what, how would that go, that fight? Well, I mean, I think I can take them all. You know, yep. But I think their fans going to kill me afterwards. <laughs> what a ghastly thought. As well as good guys, of course, Mortal Kombat's got plenty of bad guys. Mighty Morphin Shang Tsung, as well as cold-hearted product of a broken home, Sub-Zero. And in the special effects frenzy, even Goro makes an appearance, but we were too scared to have a look. A more complicated character is portrayed by Talisa Soto, who takes the role of the enigmatic mega-bird Princess Katana. You're finally learning, Liu Kang. Katana. Come with me. We must hurry. However much I tried to talk about the film, it became patently obvious Talisa fancied me. Right, uh, Talisa, you play Katana in the film. Who's like Princess Katana? Princess Katana. Sorry, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> who's like two thousand years old? Ten thousand years 10, old. Ten thousand years old. I'm corrected twice. <laughs> but you look very young and fit. Do you know what I mean? For like ten thousand years old. It's that bloodline in yeah. our world. Yeah. You see, she just winked at me. By the way, Talisa's so actually winked at me. So what are you doing after what are you doing after this then, Felisa? Well there's nothing signed mm -hmm. yet, but a couple things yeah. in the burner. We'll no, see. I meant I meant after this like after this tonight. After tonight. Like, I'm in town. Oh yeah? Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. We could do we could do something if yeah. you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, would you be up for that? Um sure. One yeah. of those days that is not, you know, those yeah. crack of dawn calls. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I've scored. Released later this year will have a PG-13 rating, so don't expect the gore of the game. But with tons of suspense, action and special effects ahoy, it will be equally groovy. the second half of Dom's trips to LA and going to see various films being made. We saw Lawnmower Man 2 last week and this week we see the much bigger, the much more well-remembered, the quite beloved Mortal Kombat, a film that if you ask people what's their favorite video game movie adaptation, more often than not, people will say Mortal Kombat above anything else. It's got that soundtrack, it's got that look. I think, despite the fact it misbehaved a lot, I thought the animatronic Goro looked really cool. I like it as well, and I think this is a really fun feature, like interviewing the cast members. He introduces uh, Bridget Wilson, Sampras, he interviews Robin Shu and Talisa Soto. It's, it's really cool, and we get to see a lot of the film being done, a lot of things that they were shooting. No Paul W.S. Anderson uh, being interviewed, but it's still like, you can get you hyped for a Mortal Kombat movie, because they show so much of Sub-Zero, like, wow, this really does look and feel like a Mortal Kombat film. Certainly more than the Street Fighter feature did a few weeks back. Yeah, and they talk about how this is their New Line's highest budgeted film to date. Was it? Was it really? And so I went and looked, and I'm like, a budget of $18 million. For New Line, that is actually a very high-budget film. Yeah, this is pre-Lord uh, of the Rings New Line cinemas. This is just when they were like, they spent $8 million on a movie. I was like, whoa, 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 pushing the boundaries out here. But we also see Dom interviewing here. And this, I think, is some of my favorite Dom interviews because clearly people are clued up with how he's going to be, with what he's going to be saying. He said in the Purple Column last month that he'd given Talisa the heads up that this is how it's going to be because she was in a bad mood because she hadn't liked her lunch. Mm. But even starting with Bridget Wilson, a.k.a. Sonia Blade, 
she starts by reading her byline, the same thing we got with Law Merman 2, and saying, oh, you know, I don't let stuff get in my way. I'm very tough. And Dom just goes in with the, oh, yeah, my mum's like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and Bridget is just like, oh, well, you know what I'm talking about then. Exactly, yeah. Then she just continues, like, going by her spiel. She clearly can see the press officer stood to one side and know she needs to work this in. And Dom's like, yeah, cool. How hard are you in real life? And she's like, oh, it depends on if I like you or not. And then Dom says, well, could you take Martina Navratilova? And I don't think she knows who that is. As in a clue. Because she does take the sensible answer of going, the better question is, who couldn't I take? Which is a very good answer to that question, especially because she has no idea who he's talking about. But one of the things I, I quite like about Dom in these thing, things that we've seen here is that I, I do a lot of interviews. Well, I have done a lot of interviews over the years. So I've done a lot of like the press stuff and things where it's just like, you know, they're ask, answering the same questions over and over and over again. And you can always tell when you get something different out of an actor during a press junkies or, or a set visit or something like that by the way that they respond to questions because they're so used to just repeating the same thing over and over again that when you catch them off guard, you can get something a little bit different out of them. That's why I like Dom in this because Dom's not there to ask the standard questions he's there to ask stuff that's a bit off the wall a bit irreverent and and i i really like that it makes the feature feel more fun and alive he's not there to find out about the motivations of Liu kang he's there to find out whether he could beat up new kids on the block which he reckons he could but i love this answer from robin their fans would kill me though yeah i like robin a lot i like him in the movie he's great here again he's working with it he, see, he can tell this is going to be a bit of a different interview. It's going to be a bit goofy. It's going to be a bit silly. And, and he rolls with it. And then we get to Talisa Soto, who plays Princess Katana. And Dom talks to her. And I think he deliberately gets some of these things wrong. I think this is like, I get the feeling this is almost a little bit of a bit or even just, even if she wasn't aware of it, he was. Because he just calls her Katana. And she's like, no, 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 no. Princess Katana. And he's like, and you're 2,000 years old. And she's like, no, 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 10,000. And he's like, oh, but you only look 2,000. And I'm like, oh, you smooth son of a gun. Yeah, he is de definitely playing an angle here because it's essentially like, I love this question of just like, what are you doing after this? Because it sounds like, what's your next project? And that's the question that she answers. And then he's like, no, no, what are you literally doing after this? After like we finished like recording here, do you want to get a drink or something? It's really funny because that again, because <laughs> because she's been briefed because she knows what's going on she gets to play along with that she's like oh okay now we're into this portion of the interview and totally plays up to it it's really funny although she just say well you know yeah yeah sure while well, you're in town although you know it'll have to be on a night where i don't have an early morning call which one sounds a bit suggestive but also two that ain't gonna happen dom it ain't gonna happen dom you're not you're not gonna get that despite the fact he looks at the camera and goes i've scored her response to the whole oh two ten thousand you barely look two thousand is she doesn't actually she actually makes a joke that works in universe and she's like oh it's the outworld bloodline and i just thought you just made a canon joke I like you. Yeah, it's really This could good. have just been another paycheck, but you've clearly actually read the brief on this fucking series, which, well done. But our last thing that Dom has to say in this feature is probably one of the bigger points of contentions about the original Mortal Kombat movie, which is it's a PG-13 movie, which means there will be no fatalities, there will be no massive lots of bloodshed, this will be a straight action movie. And... 
the film has been derided a lot over the years because of that. Paul Anderson made a PG-13 movie. It's not a proper Mortal Kombat movie. They didn't mean for this, that, and the other. I mean, I, I've, when I interviewed Anderson, he was very, like, not defensive about it, but he was very upfront about it. It was like the evidence that we had in front of us, it was more kids were playing it than adults were playing it. So we made a film that they could go and see. And I totally get what he's saying there, and I totally get the idea, but I do massively disagree, particularly as we've gone through this series. And I brought this up when we did the Mortal Kombat special in Series 3, when he said to me, a very, a very po-faced, he was like, honestly, people didn't care about the violence in Mortal Kombat. They cared about the story, and they cared about the special moves and the characters. And I'm going back and watching this series of Games Master. Bullshit, <laughs> lads. People were all about the violence in this game. Well, sadly, that's it for another series of Games Master. Over the past 18 weeks, we've laughed, we've cried, but most importantly, we've upset a lot of old people. We're off now to do something nice. Goodbye, boys and girls. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. So here it is. It's our final goodbye to Series 4, apart from the core special. And this is where we find out, you know, we talked about this with the Purple Column last week. It was supposed to be 18 episodes. The Gore special was supposed to be part of that 18 episode run. Because Dom says here, over the last 18 weeks, we've been doing this. But it's not. It's only been 17. But I like that this final moment here is Dom saying, we're off to do something nice. After all of the crap that he's done, they're off to do something nice. And they start to walk off. And it's the second goblin, the goblin that's on the far side of, of, of Dominic. That just as he turns around, he just says his little wave to the camera. And at that point, I'm just like, oh, mate. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to miss these guys. I'm going to miss the goblins. And then the games master starts singing, we'll meet again, which doesn't say goodbye, just starts singing and then fades out into a fireball. A really kind of like nice ending to the series. Uh, You know, there wasn't a games rig exploding, but it it kind of had a definitive end to it. And I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. I like this episode a lot, but I guess yeah. that's what we should get on to, Luke, for the final time of season four, because we are not counting the gore special just to drive that bugger home. <laughs> we will cover it, but it is separate from season four. Don't care that it was part of the production cycle. Don't care that it was meant to come earlier. We're going in broadcast order. Luke, what did you think of this episode? Yeah, just to reiterate again, and it only came four days later, but we're still sticking with our plan and we are doing it as a bonus episode after the wrap-up. I really enjoyed this episode. I thought it was a really fun way to round this off. Uh, the Darkstalkers challenge wasn't the greatest games playing you're ever going to see in terms of a fighting game, but I thought that the kids that interviewed were really good fun. I thought we got some really interesting particularly the jukebox and the Stargate CD-ROM of just like, here is what things are going to be like. That jukebox one in particular, you know, reviews were fine. The Celebrity Challenge was really made up for by Natalie and Brewer's incredible charisma, makes up for quite a naff game, really. And that Mortal Kombat feature to round things off was really quite excellent. Um, It was really good. Like I said with the Lawnmower Man one last week, a good window into what Games Master is set to become in Series 5 and Series 6. Thumbs up this episode gets from me. And same, I will say that with Darkstalkers, what I compare it to is first appearances of other fighting games. And on that basis, I think it's actually one of the strongest. You compare it to the first time we saw Street Fighter 2, where a fireball seemed like a godly and mythical thing. Same with Mortal Kombat. 
Yeah. Same with like Primal Rage to a degree. Same with, I can't believe we talked about it for like five to ten minutes earlier, Rise of the Robots. Darkstalkers fared a lot better than all of those on their first appearance. And so I think it's commendable here. And part of that is because the kids will be slightly more used to fighting games now. And so they can carry kind of general gameplay knowledge over. And I think it fared them well and the game still looked great and it made me want to go and play it. And that's the important thing, really. The the crazy clowns with all the Ks. I mean, I wouldn't mind playing it. I'm not sure it's going to be top of the list. I'm going to rush out for it. It looks fun. It looks very nice. And I do like isometric games because it's something you don't see much of nowadays. Reviews were great. News was great. Consultation Zone was fun. Final feature. Oh, so good to see Mortal Kombat. Absolutely wonderful. And again, much like the last couple of weeks, it was a nice, coherent episode. And it is definitely slightly better than the last two, which means I'm not going to go to 90. I'm going to go to 91. Oh, okay. I mean, which you and I are just like one out each. We keep like incrementally going up, but I was at 90. It's a 90 episode. I'm giving it one. Uh, Diamondism for the wave at the end oh such a cute little wave heartbreaking stuff but i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode thank you all so much for listening you all rule uh, you can find us on twitter at underconsolepod, on instagram at under.console and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com and if you want to chat with us in real time if you want to argue with us about whether the gore special is canonically <laughs> part of season four and we've got it wrong spoilers I don't care. It's just making our recording life a little easier. You can join our Discord, where other people will be arguing about it who are also fans of Under Consultation, Games Master, and gaming in general. Details can be found on our social media and in the show notes. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash underconsolepod, which will give you access to UCP Extra, which is this show format, but about other 90s TV shows like Raggy Dolls, The X-Files, Funhouse, Nightmare, The Real Ghostbusters, as well as our monthly community podcast, Under Console Nation. And at the £5 level, you can get next week's episode, which will be our Series 4 wrap-up a week early and ad-free. And at the £10 level, you get a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? We are approaching the end of the era of mugs. This will be one of your last chances to get on board the Patreon Mug Express, which will be filled with retro trading cards, retro sweeties, exclusive Patreon badges and stickers, and £5 off our under-consultation t-shirt, which can be bought along with other badges, stickers and mugs, while stocks last, from underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Xanderthol, William, Simon, Sean, Sarah, Roberts, Richard, Rich, Nick, Misha, Massey, Clark, Kevin, Jamie, Gordon, David Palmer, David Fisher, Colin, Cliff and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. You're all terrific human beings. We will see you next week for the Series 4 wrap-up. Take care, everyone. We'll meet again. Don't know. Oh, wait, next week. Yes, next Good week. Night. Yeah, next week. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.